Good afternoon, New Haven. You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Hello, I'm Betsy Kim. Thanks for joining us on Law, Life, and Culture. Now, people who are accused, not convicted, but just accused of crime are often not the most politically popular or powerful people in society. Yet the team at Connecticut Bail Fund wants to assure that such people are treated justly and equitably under the law. They help defendants post bail to stay out of jail while awaiting trial. One of the executive directors and co-founders of Connecticut Bail Fund, Brett Davidson, joins us in our WNHH studio. Hello, Brett. Welcome to Law, Life and Culture. Hi, thanks for having me. So now, first of all, can you explain the basics of what your program does and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, sound good? Um, So bail, just to give a little context on what bail is, in case anyone doesn't know, is a deposit that defendants have to pay to the court in order to um, be free pretrial. So if I have a $1,000 bail, for example, um, I've been charged with uh, breach of peace, something small. Um, then I can pay $1,000 to the court, and then I'm free as I fight my case um, throughout the pretrial period. And during this period, I'm like in the eyes of the law, I'm presumptively innocent. I'm presumptively innocent, um, innocent until proven guilty. Um, and so it becomes for the state a question of like what happens to me during this period. Um, if I can't pay bail, if I don't have $1,000, or if I don't have a 10% premium, $100 in that case, to pay to a commercial bail bondsman, then I'm detained until my case is disposed. Um, For men in New Haven, that means they're incarcerated at Whaley. Um, For women, uh, York and Niantic. And so uh, what the Connecticut Bail Fund does is we intervene in cases where people are being incarcerated just because they can't pay bail. So one of the effects of this um, wealth-based detention system is that you have a lot of people who are charged with relatively low-level stuff Um, who don't have any money to pay bail, so who don't have that $100 uh, in order to bond out, and so they end up detained throughout the pretrial period. Um, You see a lot of people end up taking plea bargains that they wouldn't otherwise have to take just to get out of pretrial detention. Um, People lose their homes, they can lose their jobs, they can lose custody of their children, um, all during a period in which they've been accused but not convicted of anything. And so we come in and provide bail for people who find themselves in this situation, Um, and then when their case is disposed, assuming they've showed up to court, we get the money back. So the fund revolves. Okay. But instead of a presumption of innocence, people often say, well, there are so many laws and safeguards in our society. By the time that detectives have gathered enough evidence and the district attorney's office has chosen to charge someone with a crime, most of these people are probably guilty. So why should we spend time and resources securing their rights as opposed to just say victims' rights? Mm. Um, I would say two things. Um First of all, I, I don't know if the um, if that premise is true. I don't know if it is the case that most people who are charged with crimes are guilty. Um, we had a client a few weeks ago for whom we posted bail. Um, she was arrested following an alleged domestic dispute with her mom, 26 years old, living at home. And um, she had a $100 bail that she couldn't pay. And... Uh, 10 days after her arraignment, the charges were dropped. So if she had been in pretrial detention during this period, she likely would have pled guilty just to get out. The prosecutors may have leveraged her pretrial detention 
to um, get a guilty plea bargain in place. Um, but because she wasn't in jail, she didn't have to plead out. So this is a case in which the evidence against her was very weak. It was a domestic dispute that didn't belong in the criminal system in the first place. Um, but the money bail system, without any intervention, would have created a presumption of guilt for her. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm not sure that the premise that the majority of people who are being arrested and prosecuted are, in fact, guilty. I don't think it's true. Um, and in a lot of states, my understanding is that um, prosecutors triage before prosecuting cases. So they'll throw cases out um, before even putting any resources into prosecuting people. In Connecticut, that doesn't happen until like uh, after arraignments, like 10 days after arraignments. So prosecutors aren't even really um, eliminating cases that they might otherwise drop until like 10 days after someone's been arrested. And so when police are over-criminalizing and then the prosecutors aren't eliminating cases that might have really weak evidence for 10 days, you end up with a lot of people serving short stints in jail, which are really destabilizing. Okay. Um, oh, and then just to answer the last part of the question uh, about victims' rights, like I don't think it's necessarily... Um, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that victims' rights are opposed to the rights of people who are being charged with, with crimes that have victims. Um, and you see that a lot of the times when people are criminalized for domestic disputes um, where uh, the victim might not want any prosecution to happen. Yeah. So now the Connecticut Bail Fund only helps clients accused of low-level misdemeanors, correct? No, not correct. Generally, yes. So we'll post bail up to $5,000. Um, and so most of the time that's low-level misdemeanors. Um, but... Uh, Sometimes, like, for example, failure to appear can be a felony charge. And we've, inter we've intervened in cases in which people are being criminalized for not showing up to court. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we don't, we don't honor the distinction between misdemeanor and felony because it's a somewhat arbitrary distinction. But you don't take on or do you a people accused of things just say murder or robbery, armed robbery? No, we don't. And that's exclusively because of the bond amount. Um, like we believe really, really strongly in the presumption of innocence. So someone being accused of murder, like I don't believe that individual should be detained pretrial. Um, but the limit that we have on our bond amount, uh, just because of how much money we have, makes it such that we primarily intervene in low-level cases. Okay. What would you say are the majority of types of crimes your clients are accused of? Um. It's a variety, and it's really hard to generalize because we don't have a large sample size. We've bailed out 16 people. Um, but a lot of them, I mean, I think some of the unifying factors are that a lot of them have to do with poverty being criminalized. So um, things like uh, violated protective orders in cases where people have unstable housing situations and um, need to be near people who they have pending criminal matters related to. So um, we have a few of those. Um, drug charges... Um, breach of peace, which is a really uh, vaguely defined charge that can be used to uh, criminalize people for any number of like actions in public. That um, so, you know, in the yeah. case of violating uh, protective orders, that's one that I think people are a bit sensitive to because mm -hmm. there is a definite victim there. You know, when it's talking about victims' rights, defendants' rights, and that you know some people might not particularly support um, easing 
some of these people out of detention, even prior to their convictions, if somebody else's safety or life um, well-being is at stake. What is your response to that concern? Um, I think it's a really great concern. I think it's just really hard to generalize. Um, I think that uh, asserting that um, majority of cases in which protective orders are violated are situations that have a victim. It's not that's not clear cut. Um, I've seen a number of cases where um, people are criminalized for violating protective orders when the interaction between the parties was entirely consensual. Um, so, uh, people like if people have joint custody of children um, who they're trying to take care of, that creates a real mutual responsibility, and it's like takes a lot of work and collaboration, and it can be really hard to negotiate prote- protective orders when people are co-parenting. So does your discussion lead to some other questions about whether people even accused of some of the crimes that you described, whether incarceration should even be part of the sentencing? For example, in nonviolent drug and alcohol offenses, do diversion programs instead, like work release or counseling clients, cost much less for society, not only in terms of dollars, but also considering loss of useful, productive labor? Yeah, absolutely. Um and a lot of diversionary programs are available. I think the court system has done a good job of that. Um, I mean, as far as what we have talked about as an organization and would like to see um, would be for all these things to happen before the point of arrest, at the point at which someone has been arrested and then placed into a diversionary program, they're still under the control of the penal system. And so um, as a group, like our board, we're very supportive of measures to... Um, decriminalize a lot of the situations that uh, that we're even talking about in the first place. I think an interesting thing about the cases, like something that I've learned from intervening in the cases that we have been able to intervene in, is that the majority of our clients are never going to serve jail time after sentencing. And I think that's the case for a, hu- a huge percentage. I don't, I don't have the statistics, but a huge percentage of... Um, People in lower criminal court serve jail time only pre-sentencing as a result of the bail system and will never actually be in jail as a result of any finding of guilt. Um, Can you explain that a little more? Because that seems a little counterintuitive. Yeah, it's extremely counterintuitive. Like, why would somebody um, be detained if it's for a crime that doesn't even require uh, incarceration as part of the sentencing? Just because they can't pay bail. Um And so judges set bail in a lot of cases with um, where incarceration would not be appropriate post-sentencing for a lot of different reasons. And again, it's really hard to generalize. Is the real risk, though, or the thought that the bail and incarceration is because they won't show up at court for their trial? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of the I think that's a huge part of the logic. And my response to that is. If it's not an offense that we deem worthy of incarceration and we're merely incarcerating someone because they might not show up to court is that we just need to do a quicker job disposing these cases right off the bat instead of dragging out the process over months and months. You know, I know you more focus on pretrial issues of incarceration, but I do want to talk about the criminal justice system in general and how race is a factor, because I've read several articles about how race permeates almost all layers in the justice system. In 2013, Joe Palazzolo in The Wall Street Journal reported that black men receive 
nearly 20% longer sentences than white men convicted of similar crimes. And I've read numerous articles about how in different states, in pretrial detentions, race and ethnicity are factors. The Vera Institute reported that black people were 10% more likely to be detained than white people in the same situations. And racial disparities in pretrial detentions were particularly large for misdemeanor against other persons offenses, where blacks were 20% more likely than whites to be detained. Do you know what the statistics are for Connecticut with incarceration comparing blacks to whites in both pretrial detentions and lengths of sentences after conviction? That's a great question. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head. I do know that as Connecticut has been decarcerating, like our pretrial population is down, but the racial disparity is up, um, which I think speaks to um, what's happening on the policing level. Um, But I really don't know the statistics off the top of my head. But yeah, the racial disparities are huge and really telling. You know, in 2016, the Prison Policy Initiative, a nonprofit research organization, reported that at any given time in the United States, 2.3 million people are incarcerated or were incarcerated in 2016. This included state and federal prisons, juvenile correction facilities, local jails, military prisons, and immigration detention facilities. And the report noted that people go to jail over 11 million times each year. And the report noted most people sitting in jail have not been convicted of any crimes. Some people have, as you noted, just been arrested um, and they are too poor to make bail and must remain behind bars until their trial. And only a small number, approximately 195,000, are in jail because they've been convicted and are generally serving misdemeanor sentences of under a year. You know, I've read about one quarter of the 14,800 inmates in Connecticut prisons are defendants awaiting uh, trial or sentencing. Can you speak more about, in terms of numbers with the jails, how many are incarcerated awaiting trial as opposed to for lower level offenses? Yeah, I think there's about 3,300 people in pretrial detention um, in Connecticut. Uh And I think nationwide, there's like uh, about 450,000 people in pretrial detention. Um, So it's a a a shocking number. Yeah. Uh, So does your office primarily work with people uh, getting people released on bail while they're awaiting trial at the New Haven Correctional Center on Whaley Avenue? Or do you represent people in jails throughout Connecticut? Um, So we've been operating primarily in the courthouse, sitting in arraignments so that we're able to um, be present for the bail determination for um, everyone who's like locked up post arrest, um, and so that enables us to access both men and women. Um, and we have been operating too, also at New Haven Correctional on Whaley, and um, like I said, in Niantic at York for women. But we do plan to uh, expand statewide as soon as we have the resources. I think with drug use cases, most people would be sympathetic in agreeing that locking up people because they're poor and cannot afford bail unnecessarily escalates their problems and eventually problems for all of society. But what about misdemeanor crimes against other persons or property? Do you run into far less public sympathy in those cases? Um, I mean, as far as public sympathy, I think, yes, there's a lot of stigma around the kind of cases that you're talking about. Um, I don't 
think that like I have never heard a compelling logical case why incarceration is the answer. Like what we do know is that when you lock people up, even in short uh, stints in jail, you increase recidivism and it makes a lot of sense because you destabilize people's lives, remove them from their families, remove them from access to resources, put them in a really violent, traumatic atmosphere. Um, so I think the support of incarceration is generally people feel it's to protect other members of society. So in crimes against people or their property, what is your response to the lack of sympathy then in your bail cases? Lack of sympathy from whom? You know, in the general public. Um, I mean, again, I would just take issue with the logic that we protect society by putting people in jail, by isolating people. Um, like to me, it, it feels clear that we make society less safe by doing that. Um, first of all, like I said, because a lot of these people don't end up like serving time in the end. So people are just serving these like short jail stints. They're not being incarcerated for any legitimate legal reasons and people end up back out, but having been destabilized by this experience and losing their um, jobs and having other troubles. That yeah, exactly. Social problems. Um, and then also when we talk about safety, it's like, whose safety are we talking about? Because if we're talking about the safety of the people who are um, like constantly having to go through this system, I think it's clear that people's safety is jeopardized by being incarcerated where you don't have access to good health care. Okay, so I'll give another example. Just say I got pickpocketed on the bus and I didn't lose a tremendous amount of money, but it was an annoyance and I felt violated. And I know this bleeds the line between the accused and the convicted, but how do you nonetheless get people victimized in these kinds of situations that I just described to not take the idea of um, not wanting that person running around and pickpocketing other people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard for me to respond to that other than to say like what I might feel if I've been pickpocketed. Um, and I think that if I was the victim of a crime like that, um, I don't think my instinctual response would be to desire incarceration for the person who pickpocketed me. Um, I would like some kind of restoration, like I'd like my money back. I'd like to be in some kind of mediation with that individual if it were possible. Um, but the idea of punishing, controlling, surveilling, incarcerating uh, someone who does something like that feels to me like it doesn't do anything psychologically for me to alleviate whatever traumatic experience I had being the victim of a crime. And it doesn't do anything to address some of the underlying issues that might have caused that individual to need to do that. Now, any listeners who are just tuning in now, we're speaking with Brett Davidson, co-founder and executive director of Connecticut Bail Fund on WNHH 103.5 FM's Law, Life and Culture. So another interesting dimension of your work, Brett, has been with the rise of clients who are immigrants with President Trump's executive order pushing for stricter enforcement of immigration laws and deportation. On March 3rd, in the New Haven Independent, Markeisha Ricks wrote an excellent article about how your group is teaming up with Unidad Latina and Acción Junta for Progressive Action and the Connecticut Immigration Rights Alliance to now create an immigrant bail fund. Can you tell us more about how this came into being and about this program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I sat down um, in summer 2016 with John Lugo from Unidad Latina and Acción. And we talked about uh, the experience that he and Ula and St. Rose de Lima and Junta had had 
after the ice raids in 2007, trying to raise bond money as rapidly as they could in order to get everyone out and some of the organizational challenges that they had had. And so we've been talking for a while since last summer about um, how we might create a revolving bond fund for people who had been detained and incarcerated in uh, Department of Homeland Security facilities. And so it was a conversation that we were having for a long time. Um, we as an organization were very focused on the work we were doing in the pretrial context just because we didn't get started until November. And so the idea of starting a revolving bond fund for ICE detainees fell on the back burner for a little while. And after the um, sort of mobilization of the sanctuary movement, um, following the entry of Trump into the White House, we decided now might be a good moment to try to mobilize some of the feelings people are having towards raising money for a bond fund for immigrants. What are some of the special needs for immigrants in posting bail? Um, so first of all, the um, one of the most important differences is that not only are the bond amounts higher, but there's not really a commercial industry built around these bonds, like the way that there's a commercial bail bonds industry for the pretrial context. Um, I mean, there is like there's this company Libre by Nexus that does immigration bonds. Um, and there have been a bunch of exposés recently about how exploitative their programs are. So generally, like if you're detained in immigration detention, if you want to get out on bond, you have to raise your entire bond amount. Um, and sometimes these amounts are really astronomical. Like I know ULA, Unidad Latina en Acción, the last bond they posted was $25,000. And that money is tied up for a pretty long time. Um, so one of the needs is that there's just a, um, a higher need for capital. Um, and have you seen an uptick in deportation cases, not as secondary offenses, but with being in the country without documentation as the only crime as a deportable offense? You mean since Trump took office? Or? Yeah, and experiences you've had, which has galvanized this immigrant bail fund. Yeah, there have been a lot of stories of people doing routine check-ins at the ICE office getting detained. Um, and so... I think that's one of the newer things. I mean, there haven't been there haven't been raids in in New Haven, but um, fear is definitely up. Have you yet provided a bail in any such cases pertaining to immigration issues? Yeah, we provided bond for one person so far, and she had been detained in Greenfield, Massachusetts, for more than nine months. She had a fifteen hundred dollar bond that she and her family couldn't pay. Um, and we connected with her through the Workers and Immigrants Rights Clinic at Yale Law School, who are providing legal counsel, um, and were able to bail her out a few weeks ago. Well, I think some people turn a bit harsh because they feel threatened or like the U.S. is giving um, rights that they or they ch their children are entitled to to someone else. And with, for example, success stories of people who immigrated to this country, a response is, at times, a resentful cry of special privileges and thinking, well, I would have liked those opportunities for myself or my own children. So is there a lashing out to get any of the competitive, the immigrants out of the way? And how do you respond to this anti-immigration resentment towards special treatment that, you know, honestly is somewhat tied into Trump's winning the election and his campaign rhetoric? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's really hard to respond to. I mean, I think that the response has to take the form of specific conversations with individuals expressing these views to say, like, how have your rights been infringed by the presence of undocumented immigrants in our community? Um, 
because I think like once you get into that conversation, it becomes more personal and, um, and you can, I haven't really heard any compelling answers to that question. And by conversations, you can flush out the irrationality. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you raise funds, especially now that you've expanded operations and are helping more people in helping bailing them out? Um, through whatever means possible, um, talking to people in the community who have money to give about why um, this is a compelling option. You know, I think like the ACLU, they raised, it was highly publicized, like immediately after the election, um, they raised whatever, $25 million. And I think it's because people with money feel a strong urge to um, be generous with that money right now. And so um, what we've been saying is that uh, here's an opportunity to give money where rather than supporting litigation um, for what might be far off systemic change, um, you are directly decarcerating. Like there are individuals who are presently incarcerated who are there just because they're poor. And if you have money to contribute, then um, this is a way to get people out. So it's a very grassroots direct kind of intervention. So are you 100% donation funded? Yeah. And we also have grant support from a few different organizations, such as the Community Foundation. So is another problem with racial disparity and the treatment of who is released on bail and who is sitting in prison in that much of the judicial determinations are subjective. I mean, I believe there are no such thing as so-called judges, judges or judges. But because our society does have some ugly racial biases, I think this can affect how uh, some of the judges can treat different defendants. Do you think that that is a problem or are problems more systemic and far more reaching beyond the individual judges in the cases? Well, I think judicial discretion is a huge problem. Also police discretion. Like when people are arrested in New Haven, the first person to set bond is the police. Um, and they do it in a pretty arbitrary fashion generally. Um, like Holly Tucker, for example, she um, was assaulted by the police and then arrested in September and she's someone with no record who has a kid. She's a teacher. She's an activist in New Haven. And she was held in the police station overnight on an astronomical bond. And you have to ask why. And then there's no system of accountability. So I do think discretion is a huge problem in bond setting. Um, but I don't think the solution necessarily is to move towards an empirical risk-based approach because like the risk assessments that um, the bail commissioners might use to make a bail recommendation also have really extreme racial biases and they take into account things like education and poverty and criminal history um, in determining whether someone should be locked up on an astronomical bond. So it's equally perverse. In addition to raising the funds to provide bail or bonds for defendants, are you also involved in pushing for legislative reform? Yeah, definitely. Um, and we'll be at the... Um, upcoming hearing at the legislature um, in order to advocate for bail reform and share some of the stories about the individuals who we've provided bond for, um, who there's really no legitimate justification for incarcerating. Um, and I think that our intention as an organization, um, rather than to get 100% behind any pending legislation, is try to try to create a more sustained conversation about what pretrial justice looks like and engage as many people from the community as we can in that conversation. Um, so that we can uh, develop a more uh, long-term positive vision of what 
a just pretrial system might look like. Um, and that's a conversation that happens on a grassroots level rather than in the legislature. And on the radio. And on the radio. What about case law? Do you work to file briefs or support um, other legal organizations in that aspect of uh, pretrial detentions? We have not, um, but I'd be very open and interested to it. You know, there's a group, Equal Justice Under Law, which I think recently became the Civil Rights Corps, which is litigating around unconstitutional bail practices in states all around the country, and they haven't filed any suits in Connecticut, though I think there are fruitful grounds for a lawsuit in Connecticut. So I'd be very interested in trying to connect some of the stories that we've generated from the cases where we've intervened to support a lawsuit like that. Finally, I think one of the things that I find special about New Haven is I meet people who actually take initiative and accomplish things that change the world. Now, you, I understand, graduated from Yale University very recently in just 2016 and then co-founded the Connecticut Bail Fund with other Yale students, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have for people to follow their convictions, take chances, take action, and to do something to make a difference in the world? That's a good question. Um, You're um, blushing. I'm (laughs) blushing. Yeah. I'm glad it's radio. Um, I mean, I think that the most helpful thing for me has been um, being around people whose whose integrity I admire, who are thinking really critically um, about the government, about state violence, and um, who um, I care about and who care about me. So I think surrounding yourself with um, people whose moral visions you want to support is really critical and probably the most important thing. Um, I think that coming from Yale... Uh, we were really fortunate in being able to mobilize certain resources available to Yale students um, that are not easily available to activists in the community. Um, and then uh, I think some of the most important work that we did early on was um, just open community conversations in order to generate stories and display a level of humility about how we understood the bail system, how we wanted to understand the bail system, um, Barbara Fair helped organize a series of meetings in New Haven Public Libraries over the summer where we just gathered people's stories and heard from people about pretrial detention and commercial bail bondsmen. And that was hugely educating and critical in figuring out what we wanted to do. Well, thank you very much, Brett Davidson, Executive Director of the Connecticut Bail Fund. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Betsy Kim on WNHH 103.5 FM's Law, Life, and Culture.